0: This is the Decibel Geek Podcast, with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinza.
1: You know, when you're down in the dumps, and you need something to pick you up, that's us, the Decibel Geek Podcast, especially during Christmas in July. I'm Aaron Camaro, joined as always by Chris Sinzak. How's it going, my man?
2: Doing great. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic. We're, I mean, I'm mean, i really enjoying Kissmas in July. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Wouldn't it be funny if one week I actually looked at you and I said, oh, I'm horrible, but I'm not going to <laughs> anyway.
1: Let me Let me give you a list of a thousand things that are going wrong in my life. <laughs> but that's what we were talking about before. You know, yeah, there's things that go wrong in our lives all the time. But you know what? When it's Decibel Geek time, it's always a good time.
2: Yeah, and we're, we're smack dab in the middle of Kissmas in July. I had a great response to it so far, and uh, there's always there's cool things going on on the website. We're in the middle of the World Series of Kiss where we compare albums, and yeah. all of us have uh, our different opinions on those. And uh,
1: You're welcome to vote on that as well. You
2: are, and also you can go to the Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash and check out that, and uh, always posting cool pictures and stuff, so... Okay. Uh, Just kiss stuff all the time through the month of July. Uh, First of all, though, before we get to our special guest of the week... We have to do our uh, Geek of the Week this week. and
1: Geek of the Week time. This got?
2: is from foreign territory as far as uh, where this one came from. Uh, Shane Stuckless from Cambridge, Ontario. Nice. And uh, left a pretty funny comment on our Twitter page. So I will remind Twitter you, Twitter page? Some people, and Gene Simmons recently started tweeting. Which is really? it's pretty funny to, watch, to see some of his tweets.
1: Well, now I guess it's time for me to get a Twitter page. If Gene's doing it, then it's cool.
2: Yeah, so if you want to go to our Twitter page, it's just... Uh, at Decibel Geek Pod at twi- you know, on Twitter, and uh, but Shane had a pretty uh, funny comment. Uh, our good friend of the show, Mitch Lafon, who a lot of you will know who he is, uh, posted a link to a recent uh, Van Halen show in Tokyo with David Lee Roth, mm-hmm. and uh, I had mentioned something about you know somehow the subject of Wolfgang came up because Wolfgang's are a replacement player right well shane stuckless had a really funny comment he said something like if this was kissed people would accuse it of being a quarter of a tribute band so <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty funny and that was it's geek true. of the week worthy so nice so shane enjoy your uh, monopoly money and the honor and prestige and all that goes along with being geek of the week all
1: that good stuff
2: okay well let's not waste any time because we got a lot of stories to get to yeah
1: this gonna be fun we
2: are really excited to welcome to the show uh peter Ora and uh some but Kiss fans will know him affectionately as Moose. Moose. Peter was a member of the original Kiss road crew, and he was there at the very beginning when the when the, when this band was struggling to pl- you know playing clubs and going through a lot of stuff. This guy was helping get them set up and get them, get the show on the road. So um, I
1: can't think of anybody better to talk to this week, being that it is Kissmas in July.
2: Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna get some good stories. So Peter, welcome to the show.
0: Hey boys, good to hear you uh, keeping the. Keeping the the KISS family going here. Very nice. Oh
2: well we're uh we're honored to have you on here. I believe this is your first podcast interview, is that correct?
0: It is. I haven't done these but done book interviews and you know nice. television interview, but I've never done a podcast. So. Well
1: we'll we'll be gentle. But, hey,
0: <laughs> it's just another media and we're just talking to uh we're talking to a bunch of integrated circuits, right? So
2: Oh yeah. more or less, yeah. Yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> yep, you know, so here we are. But you know, good to hear you guys are uh keeping the band, you know, in in mainstream and in the the vision of uh, people that still appreciate them. So it's very nice to see what you're doing. Thanks. Did
2: you, back in the day, and well, thank you for those kind words, but back in the day, did you think that 40 years later you'd be doing an interview about them and they'd still be going?
0: Uh, No. (laughs) But I got some letters from a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. and I got to tell you, I sent him letters when I first started touring and he when he moved out of his place in brooklyn that's where he's from he sent those letters back to me and i was reading them and in the letter i said the sound of this band will rock for decades yeah don't ask me why but i put it down and it was 1974 wow when i wrote him this letter from the road because he was a musician buddy of mine we used to play together and i sent him this letter i said this band is going to rock for decades and so, in a sense, I had a feeling that, you know, they were going to take off and go. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think I'd be sitting here in my, work, in my uh, workshop talking about them 40 years later almost. Right.
1: 40 years. Now, when you talk, man, when you talk about being a roadie, I've got to imagine there's got to be three components you got to have. You've got to at least have an aptitude for construction, a love for travel, and a love for music. Where, where are you from, and how did you, you know, get to the point where you started roadieing for KISS?
0: Well, it's a real circuitous kind of thing, man. Um, I was a college kid. I was a junior in college. And, you know, engineering student slash uh, TV and film major. And I was, you know, New York was a great time, man. I mean, you could I, I played in bands. I drove a taxi cab like Paul Stanley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I worked in Off-Broadway. And Off-Broadway, uh, you know, we had multimedia uh, plays back then with 35-millimeter, 16-millimeter uh, flash pods, fog machines, spinning vortexes. We hung a guy every night without killing him. <laughs> uh, sound system, you know, and uh, I did all that. So word got out to um, through the grapevine to Sean Delaney that with this guy, who there was this guy that's working at this theater called the Jane Street Theater in west in the West uh, Village. That knew how to use flash pods and fog machines.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So lo and behold, Sean comes over and he looks me over. You know, and I'm big, I'm strong, I got a van, uh, I know I I can play an instrument, I know how to move gear, I can do flash pods. So there's like seven reasons why I was a good candidate to work for. Him. And lo and behold, I so I went down to um, to check him out. And the first place I checked him out was uh, at this loft on Church Street. Church Street is kind of like well, it's in the it was in the vicinity of the World Trade Center because I would go down there every night. I'd look up and the building was seen to be going up one floor every day. Hmm. The North Tower, well, both towers were going up. But I was watching this, so that's how I could scale my. You could see I come down one day, another floor, another floor, another floor. So I go down three stories down in the ground, and there is Bill O'Coin or Gee, mm-hmm. as we call them, because his name was Ammo. So, we always called them "Gee" for short mm-hmm. Sean Delaney and the boys, you know, and Bill had his black and white video cameras equipment set up, and I just watched them listen to him play so little by little, I got inclined to say yes i'll I'll do some work with you guys and this was this was in i want to say like september October of seventy three
2: okay. And when you uh, saw, when you saw so that's them...
0: Why, that's where I came from. I came from, you know, as a college kid uh, and working in Off-Broadway who knew how to use special effects. Yeah. Without and, burning down anybody's property or killing anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's
2: always important. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah.
2: Well, th- when you saw them, were they, did you see them do the whole show with everything, or were they, were they without makeup at that time?
0: Oh, they were without. It was all in their street clothes. Oh, okay. It was street clothes. And Sean Delaney was putting them through their paces for, uh, for you know, like the deuce, the opening, da, 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 ba, ba, the back and forth yeah. that they were famous for. And they videotape it. And then they'd play it back and they say, okay, now watch it. And then they'd watch it. And they'd, oh, you're out of sync, you're out of sync. And then little by little, they would get their uh, choreography uh, dialed in with, by using uh, video. He was a television producer, a TV show called Flipside, I think.. Yep. And he had access to a couple of cameras and a recorder, and he would record the band, and he would say, "Okay, now you don't turn your back on the band and you know we want you to do. we don't want you milling around on stage like cattle. Right kind of thing. <laughs> you're on stage, you have a perfunctory perfunctory uh, duty, so to speak that you know when you're out there you're sharp you're not languishing and that was the thing they came out they had definition mm-hmm. in from song to song to song and of course in between while they're playing that's their own thing you know what I mean
3: yeah but uh,
0: you know they got uh, Sean gave them you know ideas as how to be or some moves because Sean was very much um, a musician himself Sean Delaney he was no longer with us as you know
1: and a showman obviously I'm sorry? And a showman. You know, it sounds like it's Sean Delaney's rock and roll boot camp.
0: Uh, it was. It's like funny you mentioned boot camp. It's like I, 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 I refer to Kiss as like the Vince Lombardi school for roadies. Sweet. It was that. You know how Vince Lombardi was a taciturn of a uh, football coach, right? Right. Uh, right. Little by little, they started, you know, getting their moves together. One song after the other after the other. And uh and so that was my first intro into into seeing the band. And that's where Paul gave me my nickname. My nom du Dugar, my road name as Moose. <laughs> because uh I was like what did I do? I carried um I had a mar you know, we all know what a Marshall stack looks like. Well I had one two bottoms, one in each hand.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I started walking up the stairs with both marshals, both bottoms. <laughs> and he looks at me and goes you're a moose. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of stuck. Uh-huh. So, and I, that went through my adult life, even when I was working in the dubbing stages here in Hollywood mm-hmm. um, as an engineer, people were calling me Moose. That kind of like followed me around for a while. And they still do. If they know me long enough, you know, they call me Moose. And, you know, I don't care. Well, yeah. if
1: Paul Stanley gives you a nickname, you might as well stick with it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I might as well. I thought it was a good bet. You well, know, it, it, it sounded appropriate.
2: Well, and a lot of us that are fans really only know Kiss as a successful band, but you were there when they were still paying dues. Can you just give us your impressions of what the guys were like back in those early days when they were really struggling? I mean, what kind of people were they?
0: Hey, you know, they weren't in a, in a sense. Oh, I'm trying to. They were good people. Yeah. Okay. I, I can't say I'm not here to be smirch or you know, they they were they were struggling. They wanted to make it.
3: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, they were. Um, they listened right, they listened to people, they listened to management, they listened to you know even us guys who were you know the must guys it was only me uh you know about certain things, and they weren't jerks or you know anything like that they were um they were having fun, they were enjoying themselves
3: mm-hmm.
0: they knew that they were they had an album deal at that point, they had a Casablanca deal, right. Okay, so at that they knew um, they were, and they, well, let's see. When I met them, they already recorded the album. That's right. The first album was already recorded
3: mm-hmm.
0: because I remember going to Brunswick, New Jersey, to the stamping factory to pick up the first 125. Wow! Right on. Tis demo, tis demo albums, the first album.
1: That's very cool.
0: Being, being a student of audio, going to the Institute of Audio Research, and. You know, studying uh, and having hands-on experience in a recording studio already, and having l- looked at the mastering process, uh, I was real interested in the stamping process. The mother, the master, mm-hmm. the biscuit, you know, and they put the label and the label on the top and the bottom, and then they smash down with, you know, 10 tons of pressure, and the steam goes in, the steam goes out, you know, and all and then, voila, there's a record.
3: Right. I love
0: that stuff. So I picked up their first album. They had... Re- they had recorded their first album, yes. Mm-hmm. So they were already primed and ready to go out on tour in their heads. Right. And Ira Blacker at uh, the uh, the talent agency, where you know, was lining up some uh, gigs for them already. But the kind of people that they were, back to your question, because I do sometimes wonder, <laughs> um, they were sincere. They were. Um, Genuine. They were. They were. They had a focus.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: They did what they wanted to do. They knew where they wanted to go. They knew they were a good band just by some of the response that they got from the Coventry jobs, at the gigs that they did. Sure. At that point, they had done one, and I think I'd done had done two or three with them there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you know, they were they were they were pretty heads up. They you know there wasn't any you know. Stupid, you know, it yeah. wasn't any, anything stupid.
2: In recent interviews, they've kind of elaborated on the saying, kind of making a point of we were never really friends. We, we, me and Paul, Gene and Paul started the band, and Ace and Peter were hired on, and we were never close or tight. I always got the impression that they actually were fr- friends in those early days. Do you have anything you can say about that?
0: Who said that? Gene?
2: Oh, well, Gene and Paul have both kind of intimated that in recent interviews, that they were never really good friends with each other.
0: Well, you know, that may be true. To to some extent, they weren't good friends. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, pals, like you'd be a friend with Aaron or I'd be a friend with somebody. Mm -hmm. They weren't, well, I thought Gene and Paul would be because of Wicked Lester.
2: Oh, no, they were more intimating that Gene and Paul were not friends with Ace and Peter.
0: Oh, I see. Um, Well, you know, you could take a little bit of that you probably could take a smattering of that and say there's a lot of you know they say there's some truth to that yeah you know because they were the front guys number one number two they wrote the songs Mm
3: -hmm.
0: okay number three there was some animosity and it was a little bit because if you listen to the daisy tapes peter was always kind of like the front guy he was always the one talking to the audience and then when paul and bill and uh, sean wanted Paul to be kind of like one of the front men. they took that away from Peter, mm-hmm. and there was a scent there was a little bit of resentment there
2: interesting, yeah, because I have heard of there, there was there.
0: some resentment there I wasn't hip to it then, but gradually I did, yeah, because you know Peter threatened to quit the band i, can't, I don't know how many times <laughs> I've heard about I you know, <laughs> uh, two three I don't know, but you know why would you want to quit yeah because he you know he was um Wanted things, I guess, his way, and there had to be some compromise.
1: Kind yeah. Of always. Well, I can imagine too. You know, when you think about Kiss, as far as Gene and Paul and Ace and Peter, and the four guys, their their personalities are obviously very different. You know, where Ace and Peter are more party guys, and Gene and a- and Paul are more straightforward. You know, so that's going to create a little rift in itself, where you know you got the party guys and the straight laced yeah. guys. They don't really intermingle so well, no matter who you are.
0: Yeah. Right, you know, because, yeah, because I remember, you know, Gene, uh, you know, didn't have a driver's license back then. And, you know, I mean, the, the strongest thing the guy drank was orange juice. <laughs> you know, Paul didn't drink, um, but Ace and Peter did. So you're right, there was a dichotomy between the front line and the back line, so to
3: sir, speak. Sir. The
0: other guys were more uh, partiers, and and, the, and Gene and Paul were you know, were more, you know, straight not, you know, honest to say, to say, was straighter, but they were busy writing. They had to be straight in a sense because they had to write songs. Yeah. yeah. You know, the old, the old saying, you know, you have a whole lifetime to write the first album.
3: Yeah.
0: And you got three months to write the second album. <laughs> yeah. There's an old yeah. saying of that, yeah. and it's so true. So they were in their hotel rooms and we would, you know, go get them their guitars mm-hmm. and their pig nose amplifiers so they wouldn't, you know, chase everybody away. Yeah. Cause problems with the house security and, they'd sit and they'd write you know they'd write songs yeah you know and you kind of had to be have you You kind of had to have your head on straight
2: yeah i can imagine and well and describe like the the early tours you know you we were talking on the phone the other day and you know you mentioned some of the things you guys had to go through what what was basic what was a basic day like being a roadie for kiss on those early club days
0: oh man you know it was yeah, it's the club days, it was tough load-ins, it was bad weather, it was small stages. It was no help. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. We had to do our own organization. You know, we had to get up there check out the stage, see how much ceiling height I had for my effects
3: mm-hmm.
0: so I could scale my effects down so I don't have it, you know, uh, a fire or you set anything on fire. Yeah. And um it was you know the owner wasn't there. Or the promoter, he'd show up. He'd have his representatives there. We're talking the clubs now. The prosceniums were different. Mm-hmm. The three to five thousand seat prosceniums. That was a little bit different. You had union crews there. They they had a call. The lights were there. The sound was coming in. You know we wait for those boys to get set up and then we would set up, kind of thing. But it was hard. I mean, it, it was it was. Would a day of that? Take a club, like say when we did mothers, and you brought mothers up.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, it,
0: it's it's just. Um, let's see. At that point, we had Jr. I think we picked up Chavaria later on. I think Mick. So maybe we had two or three crew at that point. Yeah. You know, and uh, we would just have to okay. We'd have to find a spot where we're going to put our cases. How we're going to set up? Let's measure the stage out. We knew what how many. Sc- feet we needed to the edge of the stage um you know millions of questions where's the power where's the circuit breakers where's the fire extinguishers um and then start setting up the line yeah setting up the the lvm the levitation machine right and the first thing i always did was i looked for the hot water spigot so i could start filling up the fog machines with warm hot water Mm -hmm. and then from there continue heating them also, we had to, you know, run out to the Union Ice Company or some ice company and get, you know, four or 500 pounds of dry ice. Wow. Which is what you used What we went through that, because we had fog machines, the firehouse, and then we had the fog machines for the end of the show. So, you know, I put about 100 pounds of dry ice in each one of the baskets for each wow. shot.
1: That's a lot wow. of dry ice. <laughs>
0: That's a lot of dry ice, you know. Gosh. And uh, we had to, you know, we had a, a, a concert writer, and it said, you know, we need this, you know, soda and water and a few beers, and we need some sandwiches. And, oh, by the way, we need 500 pounds of dry ice. <laughs> 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 and they look at you, you know what? and go, what? A lot of times it wasn't there. We were going crazy. having, I mean, Okay, where is it? You know, yeah. could somebody go get it? Do we have to go get it? And, you know, and then it was setting up the show, and you were there until, you know, the band showed up. Yeah and after that you know you did your sound check and then you did your show and then you just reversed the process back everything up (laughs) put it back in a drought truck and drive another five six nine hundred miles to the next gig Uh,
2: well one of my favorite interviews uh was the kiss on the tom snyder show in 79 and during that interview they're talking about the early days, and, like, Peter brings up, like, well, Gene goes, we had a levi- levitating drum set, and then Peter cuts him off and mm. goes, no, it was just, like, guys with ropes, and, you know, <laughs> the, like, the, it would go up and then it would skip. Do you re- do you recall this uh, re- levitating drum set?
0: Well, I used to carry it around with me. We called it the Beast. I mean, this <laughs> thing was 1,200 pounds of nothing but steel. Oh, <sighs> wow. It was a forklift. It wasn't He said that in the interview on, uh, he, he said that with the rope thing again, um, on uh when Kiss ruled the world. That's not true. Yeah. No, we had kimlon barb Bob McCarthy made that effect. And basically there was a two horsepower motor with about three inch length chain
3: mm-hmm. gears
0: and that thing was driven by a motor and it a transmission on it. So you you know, you have to slow down the the RPM of the motor or so, you know you the thing would just fly up. Right. So it had a tranny on it, it had a gearbox on it. It was two three inch tubular steel there was forks in the front that you had to put this together there were legs that went out because you had to have some you know support out front or else the thing would tip over
2: yeah
0: and then the wooden deck went on top and you bolted the deck on to these arms coming out and basically it was a forklift wow but it was electric There was no question about it there was no ropes involved this thing was a (laughs) machine and it was built by the guy who did the uh did the rotating piano for Keith Emerson in California Jam 2. Really? Yeah, you know, with Keith and it was a, it was an empty piano, but he built that levitating uh uh device for uh for Keith Emerson when I mean, Keith Emerson it was Cal Jam 1, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Keith Emerson goes up, Emerson goes up and he's spinning around. Well, that's a dummy piano. It's a frame, there's no harp in it, there's no strings. You know, so they took all the most of the weight out of it. Yeah, that was a dummy piano. So, but still, the wood weighs, you know, three, four hundred pounds. Right. and With him on it, so, but Bob McCarthy of Kimlon, he had a place down in the West Village, built that effect for Kiss. And anyway, so there were no ropes. I'm <laughs> sorry, no ropes. This was a very well put together piece of machinery. And it worked well. Yeah. You know, I mean, the guy put in good stuff like you would in industry. Start, stop, start, stop. That's all you had. Yeah. You know, the thing went up, the thing went down, and there was a cutoff switch. And as soon as it went up there, you would make sure that it hit the cutoff switch, and it would stop the machine. Mm -hmm. All right? And you always made sure, and you always had that box out. Well, I did, because I'm the one who took him up in the very beginning. And he would go up, and then when it was on cue, he would come back down again.
3: Mm-hmm. okay
0: so that's the, the myth is no 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 it wasn't the. sorry peter if you're really <laughs> listening no no we didn't lift him up oh, okay with ropes. No. well i'm
2: glad you could clear a that up very
0: well put together piece of machinery yeah i remember setting that machine up on the stage of the fillmore east mm-hmm. when we first got it and i remember putting in the bolts so he could put these cables that would loop onto Peter's hardware, so it wouldn't fall off the drum riser. Right. So I'd put that, set the thing up, and um, I would put these bolt, these eye loop bolts in, drill a hole, washers, and all that. So when you set when you set his rig up, we could have like these, these little wire cable, and you'd loop it around a piece of the hardware, and then you turn the turnbuckle and tighten it. So when he smacked his cymbals and all that, it wouldn't fall forward off the off the drum riser. Yeah. And I remember sleeping on that drum riser, you know, because uh, I pulled my van up on the sidewalk to the stage door of the Fillmore. And there are a number of nights that I have slept on that when we were first starting, slept on that thing, wow. because we had to get it together because there was this big show coming up at the uh, the Academy of Music, on New Year's Eve. Wow. We were just we were just pressured. I we I was just pressured into. You know, getting this thing uh, up and working and, you know, getting it up. And we, we, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And now, Deep Thoughts with Ace Frehley. <laughs>
3: Ah. Hi, Carly. Listen to the Decibel Geek podcast on your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, and WebOS phones with Stitcher. Stitcher's smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.
2: But well, you know, you're well-known in kiss circles for... Being the guy who was injured by the short-lived exploding drumstick trick that Peter Chris did in the early days, um, yeah. for people that don't under, that didn't because there's not a lot of footage of it actually, but people that don't know what it is and haven't seen it, can you describe what the trick was and how it worked?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, it basically it was a piece of half-inch plumbing pipe, I would say four inches long. Take a piece of copper pipe, four inches long. Okay, and you cut it. Now you put an end cap on it, a nipple, mm-hmm. you know, just a cap. In that cap, you drilled a little hole, all right, and that's where you mounted the Estes engine igniter, you know, for hobbies, for toys, for for hobbyists that used uh, glow plugs to start their little gas engines for their airplanes, that right. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Alright, so that's one part of the circuit. The other part of the circuit, there on top, there was a little battery pack. The battery pack was, you know, glued on or screwed on there, and it uh, held two AA batteries, and at the front of the pack was a little red button. So you would take one side, one piece of wire would go to the glow plug. The other piece of the wire would go to the ground of the batteries. And when you close the circuit, you would the, the little and the uh, little glow plug would start to glow, you know, because it had a little tungsten filament in it, and it would glow red. That is your basic piece. And then at, there was another piece that was painted white. And that slid over the top of it, just the, nip of the front.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so when he Peter held them up, they looked like drumsticks from afar. Right. But the element, it was in two pieces, and the, the, the main ingredient was the one, the, the little piece that I just described. And so what you would do is you would take flash paper and roll it up, you know, and stuff it in there. And then you would put the extension piece on it and give it to Peter and put it right next to him. And when it came time, he'd reach over during Black Diamond, and he'd take the hand shooters, and he would, boom, boom, and on cue, he would push the red buttons, and the, and the glow plugs would glow, and the flash paper would ignite, and just shoot out like a little star. And because the type of paper that it was, it was nitrocellulose paper, which is very, very volatile. Um, it, it eviscerates. It doesn't leave ash. Right. That's, that's why it's a crime in the state of New York and many other states to possess that paper, because it's considered gambling records second-degree misdemeanor, which we may talk about a little later that you and I discussed. Right. Because the bookies used to use in the back of the candy store. They'd write their bets on it, and then when the police came through, all they had to do was jam their cigar into the paperwork, and all the evidence was destroyed.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: That's why it was a misdemeanor. <laughs> But you could buy it at a candy store in New York City on the island of Manhattan, 54th Street and Broadway. No problem. But it was illegal. But they sold it. So I didn't know that it was illegal. Never knew that there was a penal code on this stupid thing. But uh, basically, that's how, back to the question, that is how the hand shooter worked. You know, one night, you know, it just, uh, well, we'll we'll talk about that, I guess, a little further in, but... um, that's the little guy that got me. That's the guy that blew up and sent me to the hospital.
2: Now, do you remember what what city you were in when the the incident took place?
0: It was like an armory. Mm-hmm. An old military armory. Springfield Memorial Armory or something like that. So that's when it happened, December thirtieth, nineteen seventy four.
2: And basically the it ignited in your hand while you were loading it up?
0: Well, you know, I just loaded it and I put the batteries in and I went I went put one battery in, I heard click, click, kaboom. It, no, no, I didn't push the button. It blew up when I put the other battery in. Uh, Which goes to my other theory of the man in black that you and I discussed briefly. Yes, let's I get I feel that. that to this day, somebody monkeyed with my effects box. Hmm. And it's very, you know, yeah, nobody was safer than me with this stuff, okay? Yeah, it sounds like you really, I, really I on top of it. I could have ripped some people. I could have killed people. When I did, and I, I didn't with these effects because I was very safe. And I knew the, when you start open, you know, we got to remember Kiss was like the first band to bring open explosion to the, to the, to the rock stage. Right. I mean, not today where they use these punk ass gerbs. <laughs> oh, really? No, no, no. We were organic, man. You smelt it, you felt it, you could see it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it was uh, a very powerful presentation.
2: So, what you were telling me, though, there was a guy that showed up around this time that you were concerned about you hadn't seen before when this happened.
0: Right. There was a guy, when I write about it in one chapter, which nobody has ever seen, which was supposed to be in this, you know, our book, but who knows when that will ever happen. Yeah, Chris,
1: you were telling uh, me the man, about I call that him book.
0: the man in black, mm-hmm. and Sean saw him, too. This guy walked up to me, and he was in between me and my box, and I never saw his hand. But he was taller than me, and I was six and almost six three. He looked like Frank Zappa with very dark everything, mustache. And he looked like Zara with this cape on. I mean, really weird. And he asked hmm. me, What are you doing? I never forgot that. I said, Well, I'm setting my effects up. And I couldn't see his hands. So after, you know, so we would briefly, he was just looking at me with these eyes. And he walked away, and I went back to my box, and I picked up my thing. You know, and my the hand shooter, you know the element that I described.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And lo and behold, I put the battery in and it blew up. Now that never happened. I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've set that effect up. So I'm coupling this with the fact that after being shot at, after bullets being thrown on the stage at the Michigan Palace with our names on it, whoa! I, I had a feeling. Yeah, I had a feeling. That somebody was after this band.
1: And, and wait a minute, yeah. we got to back up a little bit here. What do you, you you guys got shot at in Michigan?
0: I did. Oh, I got sh- my my truck got shot at. Yes. I, mean, I was talking to Chris about this, Aaron. Well, you know, we pulled a bullet out of Gene's SVT cabinet once.
3: Damn. Okay.
0: Now I didn't say I don't. I I don't want to conflate it and make it make it look like I got shot around Michigan. It was shot at around Michigan. This is two separate instances. I packed the truck, aside from packing the gear and everything, because I I like to set up my load. I knew how the truck handled the best. Gene's SVTs were always on my side of the truck behind the driver. He had four of them, right? So there'd be two on the bottom, and then I would stack two. Mm -hmm. So they were right behind my cab in the good old yellow Ryder truck. And then I'd put the the, uh, the, uh, Marshall stacks in their cabinets, in their cases, right next to their jeans, amps. And then that's where we stacked the guitars. The softest ride in the truck was four. It was not aft, but in front of the truck. So you don't want your guys' guitars getting beat around, beat up. Right. You know what I mean? Mm. Jostled, you know, several hundred times when they're traveling. We put all the heavy metal in the back, like the SV, the LVM, the special effects. Everything wrote on the tail that was metal.
3: Right.
0: You know, if it bounced around, so what? You don't want to treat your instruments that way. So, yeah, you know, and um, we looked at it, and it was, we measured it out. It was about four feet away from the camp, the window of the camp, because the SVTs are, like I said, right behind me. And the bullet went right into uh, Gene's cabinet on top, the top cabinet. So somebody, you know, was kind of aiming at the driver here, I think. Yeah. But that's no bullshit. I Why, I do not why would anybody want to shoot life, at you guys? I have no, no compunction to conflate, inflate any of what i am saying. Okay? I want to be very clear. You know, we say we pulled a bullet out and I was driving. Yeah, somebody tried to shoot the driver. Correct? I mean,
1: were they just was it somebody that did, just didn't want Kiss around or didn't want him playing or didn't want you setting up? I mean, why would somebody shoot at you guys?
0: And I do have an idea, but Chris, we'll get into that a little later on in the show. Oh, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like probably,
2: to. I would like to actually go ahead and get into it because the events with this incident and also the one with the bullets on the stage and the drumstick relate to relate to Kiss's connection to uh, let's just say certain uh, elements. Certain elements that are based that were based out of Cleveland, and uh, yeah. Yeah. That. So can. Yeah. You, and I don't want to. I don't want to share anything that you don't want shared either. They were
1: pissed because they didn't name it Cleveland Rock City.
2: No, there was. Uh, <laughs> let's just say Kiss. Well, Kiss had some help financially from some people. Ah, one of those deals. Right? Can you? Well, well yeah,
0: The thing was with the bullets in Michigan Palace, there was ten of them. Six for the crew, including Sean. Four for the band, and they, our names were on them. There were thirty odd sixes. Damn. I wish I still had the bullet. But when we next job was in. Kitchener, Ontario, so when I went through customs, they took all our bullets away. We could not bring live ammo into Canada, uh, unless you were a hunter, or you know, and they looked at us, long hair, leather jackets, rock bear. No, you're not bringing any goddamn ammo in our yeah. <laughs> country. <laughs> you know? You can forget but to they boot took it away, and we did our strip search and all that stuff. You know what you were mentioning about Cleveland, and this was disclosed to me, unsolicited by me, uh, that's they had gotten some help, and Gene, least he's listening, he's probably going to call and send somebody and say, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, this is what Guy told me before he died, because I met him at a hotel with Ken Sharp. You know, you guys know Ken Sharp. Yeah, i mean, he yeah, right, right off of his books. We went down there to look at some video, and Guy just said to me, because he knew that I was, you know, first in with the band and all that, and he disclosed some information to me, then I said, "Gee, I don't really, you know, need to know, or should I know this or what? But he said, quote unquote, that they had gotten some help from some uh, wise guys, let's just say, in Cleveland, with the promise of money and with the promise of getting a percentage of the band. Well, they got their money back, but they didn't get their percentage of the band. Oops, you don't make promises to these people and not keep them. Right. Because shit can happen. Like trying to blow off your drummer's hand and his career, shoot some of the roadies, threaten them with bullets, you know, subtle things, you know, subtle things that have to do with bullets.
1: <laughs> yeah, no clue. And I got to
0: wow. tell you, uh, and then he said, and he, see, see, uh, I could say this, and I love Gee. I always loved Bill. Uh, I thought he was a fair man, an honest man, and he was a good man. Uh, but he also said that this certain bunch of wise guys were, you know, doing some money laundering through the management company. Not his, but the new management company.
2: That would be glickman Marks, right?
0: Yeah, that would be. Now, this is what he disclosed to me. I didn't solicit it. He just told me. And subsequently, a few years later, he passed on. But I guess he wanted me to know Paul and Gene—they may have something else to say. They say, I'm full of shit. Gene Billy, Billy, Bill's full of shit. You know, they're all lying. They're not, that never happened. Okay, fine. Say what you want. Mm-hmm. This is what the man disclosed to me.
1: Right. I mean, the Subsequent band might not to even to been that. privy to that.
0: Subsequent to that, we we get shot at. We get bullets thrown on the stage, and I almost blow up my blow off my hand. You know, mm. kind of weird. It was a real shitty last ten days in December. Of
3: 1974,
0: for me, like wow. You know, and yeah. uh, and it was you know even driving to uh, crossing the Peace Bridge, man. We came across the Peace Bridge from from Canada, and we trundling down ninety. and I made a right turn on eighty one because we're doing a job at Wilkes-Barre, Wilkes-Barre PA. Mm-hmm. Well, I get pulled over by two state troopers. You know, we're in the trucks behind us. It was my turn to drive the station wagon, so we're driving. Two troopers pull us over. They empty all of our vitamin boxes. Uh, plastic vitamin holders, and empty our pockets, and, you know, nobody had any drugs on them. Shit, you know, lucky us. But they found flash paper on me. Oh. They found one, and I swear to God, I had one piece. One piece the size of a business card. <laughs> so they said, uh, would you follow us back to the barracks? Okay, get in the car, follow them back, sit there for a few hours. They go through the New York State Penal Code. And it's a 224.10.25 or something. Second degree misdemeanor, like I mentioned before, for possession of flash paper. I was arrested for possession of one piece of flash paper. I have the arrest records, my fingerprints, my photo that they took of me. I wasn't handcuffed and I wasn't in prison. I wasn't put behind bars. I was ordered to appear, you know, some Cortland County court. Mm -hmm. It was Cortland County, Cortland, New York. And right there in Cortland County, we were stopped, searched for no reason whatsoever. No drugs were found. They didn't tassel us for our buck knives and all that. And getting arrested for flash paper, being shot at, having bullets thrown up <laughs> on the stage. Dang. You know, blowing your hair, almost blowing. You know, it's just that something was wrong with this picture. You get me? Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. didn't add up. Because I didn't know what was going on back then. I didn't know who borrowing money from from where or, or, or what or you know, I didn't have, wasn't privy to economics.
1: Damn Moose. A lesser oh, wait, man wait, wait, would have wait, said
0: money. I'm sorry.
1: A lesser man would have said, Screw this, I'm gonna go roadie for Bob Denver. Or John <laughs> oh, no,
0: Denver, no, I mean yeah, <laughs> safe, like you know, Pete Seeger or maybe Rush or, Yeah, there uh, you go. Little, Take it maybe easy. Maybe a little bit
2: Yeah, exactly. Well
0: like, you know, look at we were committed. We wanted our boys to make it. It wasn't about the money. You know, uh, Aaron, it was it was like no, we wanted our boys to make it. They were from New York, we were gonna help help them make it. You're damn right. Right on. And while I was making $105 a week, $15 a day, which is per diem. But technically speaking, I never got a salary, but I got food money. And we took possession of them, which may have been a mistake. But we wanted to see our boys succeed. Right. Without question. And Sean Delaney was like the madman who gave us that fire. He goes, you go in there, and you set that show up, and I don't give a damn what anybody says. And you, he was like Charlie Manson, crazy eyes. You know what I mean? <laughs> He had that stare about him. It was so intense that we went, "Okay, we'll do it," you know, <laughs> and we did it. And there was a promise connected to it, which was never upheld either. But so we were working on a promise which never happened. Jr. can even speak to that as well. You know, there was a there was there was that commitment.
1: Kind of a you know you help you know, us out so now. Story, we'll take care of later. On
0: that part of it. Mm-hmm. It was just between the end of the third week. The beginning, at the end of the third week of December to the end of December was just like a really, all of a sudden, shit started coming down on us,
2: mm-hmm. you know?
0: And it's all happened within a 10-day period.
2: Well, and, and that sidelined you for a while, but you wound up going back and working with them at, for the Destroyer tour, so you were seeing them on the rise up, and then you came back after they had kind of hit stardom. How different was it working for them with the giant stage show they had for that tour?
0: Uh, at that point... I wasn't working on the stage show. I was working more with the band, sort of like an assistant road manager.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they were—they had—they had. I think that tour they had seven, to seven or eight semis. Wow! And uh, you know, they had 200, 150, 200 people. You know, let them do the work. You know, we laid the groundwork. This, you know, you stand on our shoulders. Don't ever forget they Everybody that came after us stood on our shoulders. Because without us, I, Gene, said in his book, we couldn't have done it without him. Gene's right. book, he said, Kiss and, what was Gene's book? Uh, kiss and uh, I think it kiss, kiss and Makeup
2: or... Yeah. yeah. Kiss
0: and Tell? Or, or kiss, and, like that. kiss and Tell
2: or Kiss and Makeup. I can't remember which.
0: Kiss, yeah, one of those. You know, and he thanked us all. I think it was on page 95 or 96, top paragraph. Uh, you know, we couldn't have done it without them. You damn right, you couldn't have done it without them. Because anybody that was a little bit more sane than us would have left you. Yeah, after driving the weather that we had to drive through and the schedules, like even when Paul talks, we uh, in this new book coming out, that I gave him a title called the Dartboard Tour. You take a dart, throw it on a map the U.S., and that was your next tour. <laughs> none of it none of it made any goddamn sense. <laughs> you know, people didn't want to want to play with us, Paul even said. So we had to play with everybody, anybody that would let us. Yeah. I mean, how would you like to drive from St. Louis to West Palm Beach and have Blue Oyster cold bag you because you're five minutes late? Uh, All night. 900 miles plus. So you take a shower, uh, you get a few hours of sleep, you get some clean clothes, Jump back in the truck. Now you're in Florida. You're driving to Kitchener, Ontario. Damn. You're driving clear across north into Canada and find out that that gig was canceled. Uh, Man. Now, those two days Brutal. now, I just put down 23, what, three, three days. It was like uh, 2,200 miles. That's insane. And then, of course, the next job was in Chicago at the <laughs> Aragon Ballroom. Gee, the last time I looked at a map, st louis is pretty close to chicago you know maybe 400 right. miles <laughs> but this is how the kiss tour works sometimes wow. you drive 2200 goddamn miles to go 400 oh. they booted us off uh one was canceled nobody told us nobody told us the job was canceled and so we're just driving willy nilly all over the country that didn't happen often but well boy when it does happen you wonder why uh a few chairs get thrown around, a dressing room. Sure. I mean, just how much of this bullshit have we got to put up with? And now it's time for the Gene Simmons Lyrical Screw-Up of the Week. Oh, yeah!
2: Want to be a member of the Decibel Geek Army?
0: You slimy scum scumbag, get on your face and give me 25.
2: Join us on our fan page at Facebook.com slash Decibel Geek. You, you guys had plenty of run-ins with crews and sometimes the opening act, or the headliners that you guys dealt with. Like, who 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 are some of the ones that stand out that you guys worked with, good or bad?
0: Well, I'll start with the good. Okay. And I will tell you, it was Rush. Yeah. They were the coolest, the best guys to, to work with, tour with, and to um, just hang out with. The crew, the band, everybody, we love them. We love them. We got along fabulous with those guys. They were the best. If I saw Getty today, I'd thank him for giving, giving me a credit on Caressive Steel, which oh, I just yeah. found out. he He gave me a credit on the album. Uh, I just found out a couple of years ago.
3: Oh wow! Cool. I'm that. And I was out.
0: told, I was told that, hey, you know, you earned the right to get a double platinum on that. I said, you well, know, maybe I'll someday. I'll, I'll go. I'll do that. I'll go to DJ Gold in Seattle and I'll get myself a copy, just for my family to have. You know what I mean? Yeah, right on. that's cool. But they were the best. They were the coolest. And the worst people were, well, you know, we we can. There's a litany. <laughs> you know, let's start <laughs> with um, Aerosmith. <laughs> we didn't tour with them too much because there was a little bit of a problem that we had with them in Detroit. See, first we played this theater in the round at uh, in, in, in Maryland called Painter's Mill.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And we did this theater in the round. We opened up, for, and then Redbone was special guest because they had a big hit, Come and Get Your Love, which is
3: still played right. today. I remember that.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the Smithies were on top. So we get to Detroit, and all of a sudden, we're trying to set up, and they won't give us the room. Well, the, you know, I remember the Michigan Palace, man. The proscenium was 40 feet deep. There's plenty of room. You know, they wouldn't give us the room.
1: They were scared of getting blown away, I bet.
0: Yeah, and so, um, well, we didn't want to have any, we didn't want to hear that. We didn't want any, we weren't going to put up with that crap.
1: Yeah, well, this is KISS. So we,
0: uh, we basically uh, said, well, we need the room. And they said, well, no, you know, it's the Yankees-Red Sox thing. New York, Boston. Yep. Okay? Yeah. Okay. And I turned around, and tempers and Buck knives were pulled. No question about it. You gonna fuck with my band? We're gonna rip the shit out of your band. All right. And we weren't looking to kill each other, but we had our buck knives. Which I still have my buck knife, and it's in my toolkit, about three feet away from me. I still have that knife. I'm gonna read you a quote uh, from Tom Hamilton, bass Aerosmith, and he's musing about how he met Ace a year earlier. Max's Kansas City, and he was drunk. And all of it's really? <laughs> no, not Ace. And it's a year from now, and Ace is in the hotel room, and he's still drunk. He's still drunk. So, yeah. He, he goes stop. on to say, uh, from, uh, I'll quote, and I quote, From there we played with them in Detroit, and I remember hearing that there had been a confrontation involving knives between two crews. Ta-da.
3: <laughs> we were
0: headlining again, and Kiss was opening, and they needed a lot more stage space than most opening acts. Of course, we wouldn't want their gear interfering with our gear. So that caused problems between the road crews. You know, back in those days, I had an exaggerated competitive attitude to a band like Kiss. Part of that was me being really proud of our band. To be fair, I had a grudging respect for them. Back in the early 70s, being deemed commercial was not cool, but Kiss didn't care about not being commercial. They connected on the smiles on the faces of the kids that came to see them. They were more about fun and putting on a... Uh, uh, spectacle, which they'd mastered. He felt it was important to blow them off. We felt it was important to blow them off the stage. The audience was there to see us, but I don't think it was possible to see their show back in those days and not be entertained by them. Mm -hmm. Nobody was uh, doing what they were doing. They executed a theatrical show better than someone like Alice Cooper. Over the years, we've crossed paths with kids and did a tour with them back in 2003, yeah, so we that. know them much better now and get along really well.
2: <laughs> so, was
1: back then, okay. you got to think of the competition, and you know, he's right. You know, when you got Kiss on stage, it's pretty hard to come up after them and play, even if you're Aerosmith.
2: Yeah,
0: he had two great bands there. You know, I look at that, and I was talking to somebody, I said. By two thousand and three, uh, we got along much better. The Fucking right, he got along much better because both bands had made multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. Right.
2: Yeah. Money makes. Let's
0: call. Out. Let's not bullshit anybody. <laughs> Everybody made un- stupid money. Okay. Stupid money.
1: Makes it a lot easier uh, to get along. Two thousand
0: and yeah. You know they had they had got what they want. We were not going to be denied at all places, guys. Detroit Rock City. I right. beg your pardon. <laughs> that was like, you know, crown zero for us. You know, I mean, the Heartland took care of kids. They really, you know, took to the band in a big way.
1: It's that blue-collar you know, col- connection, I think, the hard-working people and the hardest-working band around.
0: Yep. That's right. You see, they were hard-working people, and they respected a the band and went up there and didn't just, like, hang out in their street clothes and go, you know, okay, here's our next song, you know. No, they came out with a. You know what they came out with? A ferocity yeah. with a passion. You know, they wanted to entertain. They wanted, like they say, they wanted the people to get the value for their, for their ticket.
2: And you mentioned to me that uh, Black Sabbath were not very easy to work with either. No,
0: no, you know, yeah. Now, let me let me jump on that. Let me. Uh, no, uh, Ozzy, uh, Black Sabbath. There was uh, a show where you know it got pretty tense there for a while with us, the crews. And Sean Delaney always would be around the box office. He'd always be around finding out stuff. And he was in the box office, and 95% of the people coming to the kiosk were asking about Kiss, not Black Sabbath. Mm, yeah,
1: at that point, sure.
0: You know, and Ozzy comes out, and he goes, well, I'm the, the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Nice. If he ever came across the Prince of Darkness, that boy would shit in his pants. <laughs> he, wouldn't know, he wouldn't know what to do. He was the prince of darkness. Well, we got our way, too. We got our show on. But that's the last time we toured with him. (laughs) You know? I always
1: remember hearing the story, too, with Sabbath, where it was like they knew it was pretty much the end of Sabbath as they had known it when Kiss started opening for them. Or they started playing shows with Kiss where they would see and be like, yeah, we can't match this. Not at that point in their career.
0: You know that was that's one of the, the new t- big topics in this book is this band could get no respect. They're like the Rodney Dangerfield, the rock bands could get no respect, no airplay. But the other bands had airplay. Everybody that we played with had airplay: Aria, e. Speedwagon, Ozzy, uh, Aerosmith. You know, you can Blue Ice, the Cult. Everybody had some kind of airplay. Yeah. Except Kiss. Kiss could not get. Couldn't buy their way in to getting the record played. Mm-hmm. So you know it was. And, of course, subsequent bands like Argent and a few other, uh, Jim Dandy, Black Oak, Arkansas, or REO Speedwagon, they weren't exactly the best bands to, uh, they, they, because when you're the opening act, and got to remember 40 years ago, they're the opening act, and you're nobody. Right. Okay? Who are you to want more, three feet more stage room? Who are you to want to use your special effects? And we said, well, we're KISS, and we're going to use our effects, and we need this much room. Now, I want you guys and your fans listening out there eventually to understand something. Very important. No, con- no fights or any consternation of any kind was ever, ever instituted or begun by a Kiss Roadie, the road crew, or the band. Okay? We had our thoughts and focus. You know, you had to, you know, we were just focused on getting in, doing the show, getting out, and getting to the next gig. Nobody really wanted to expend their energy on a fight. Even though we're 22 years old, and that's one of the requirements, you've got to be young. Two, you've got to be strong, which me and JR were, at least. Mm-hmm. And three, you've got to be in good health, mm-hmm. because at that pace, you cannot be weak. You cannot have any, anything wrong with you. Nothing. You've got to be able to jump in that truck and, boom, where are we going? 800 miles. Be there. See you there tomorrow at load-in. And we're driving from one gig to the load-in to the next. So there was nothing where the KISS Road crew started any nonsense with any other crew. They tried pushing us around, and we pushed back. And we said, we're getting our show on, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And he, it got contentious there for a while, especially with some of the British acts.
3: Right.
0: You know, they were coming off, they were, oh, they were just, you know, forget it. But one British act was great that we toured with, and that was Manfred Mann's Earth Band. We did the uh, mm. Pacific Northwest tour with Manfred Mann's Earth Band, and savoy brown we played alaska and we did uh, seattle oregon we did that whole sector up there okay mm-hmm. vancouver uh, and they were great they were great we loaned them a tool to fix an anvil case and we were fast friends with the road crew because we helped them out it's the best way to make friends with the road crew was loan the other guy a tool yeah <laughs> you're right on by working with people like Zz top Towards the end was November, December. They were fine. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of bands that were that, that we we toured with, and they were okay. You yeah. know, they they gave us our room, they gave us our space. Go do your thing. And uh, you know, I, I even met this guy who used to play keyboards for REO. He used to go to the same coffee place out here in Studio City. Mm-hmm. And he was a keyboard. His name was Michael McDonald, was it? I think his first name is Michael. I think his last name is McDonald. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they, we, we, he they would. They would go on first because they didn't want to deal with the, the water from the condensing from the fog machine. He said they slipped and fell because the stage was, you know, wet. Yeah. You know and I mean? After we went on, so they would go on first. REO would go on, and then we would go on. So it was like we, we closed the show out. It was a hard grind. The road is a hard, dirty, dangerous place. But uh, when you go from city to city, you have your own personalities. I remember even playing uh, Memphis... Uh, the club? Was it a, yeah, was it, what was it called?
2: Lafayette's Music Room?
0: Lafayette's Music Room. Mm, nice. This one. little guy comes That's around. He mm. hands out his card. I need $6. I'm from the union. Yeah, okay, what's your name? Shorty. Shorty what? Shorty Vest. Okay, Shorty. I want $6 from each guy, so we had to pay him $24 or something like that. <laughs> wow. To play on his stage. Remember... He's a union guy.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: You turn over his business card. I thought I still had it. I still want to find it. He goes, Shorty Vest, that son of a bitch from the union.
1: <laughs> oh, right on his own card?
0: <laughs> on his own card. I was just looking at the <laughs> front, honest. and I turned yeah, it over. It says, that son of it. a bitch from the union. I said, I can understand why. <laughs> You're a musician. You set foot on his stage in Memphis. He wants six. He wants some money.
2: Wow. There's truth yep. to truth in advertising. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know? So, I mean, you, you know, this is just one little, another, another day in the life of a kiss roadie.
2: Yeah. Can I uh, do a little quick lightning round with some questions from listeners? Yeah, sure. Look, at,
0: I know you're going to cut this down and all that. Yeah. and Do some editing on it. So, you know, we can go, you know, as long as you feel like i Oh,
1: yeah. We enough. haven't even got to some kool Ace frilly drinking stories oh, yeah. yet.
3: <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. That's always
1: yeah. my favorite part of the interview, in <laughs> Kissmas in July.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. um, let me, let's start off with one. Um, this is from a guy named Chris Jackson. Uh he was, one, uh, he was wanting to ask, was there any problems with uh, stuff like Gene's fire breathing in the small venues? Like, did any ceilings ever get lit up?
0: No ceilings ever got lit up. Well, that's good.
1: Not when he Moose would, is on watch. No,
0: no, he would, we would scale back everything. We would scale back everything. I mean, the, he would use uh, just, uh, you know, a half ounce just for the effect. I would scale back the flash pods right. and the flame torches. If you look in uh when Kiss Ruled the World that second segment that I'm in, part two,
3: yeah.
0: You'll see a quick shot of the of the torches on either side of one is on the side of Gene, one is on the side of Paul.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: There you'll see the flames go up maybe about seven feet, eight feet.
2: Yeah.
0: That's because I didn't have much of a ceiling above me. That's why they were short.
2: Right, right. Well, no, here-
0: flame tra- flame travels on top. So the lycopodium powder, which is what we used in the canister, had a little sterno there that was lit, and if you pumped compressed air in, it shot out this powder and made the blowtorch. Well, you know, he travels on top 100%. So, you know, if you've got a 20-foot ceiling, not like uh, the Great White Fire in uh,
2: Rhode Island, Island.
0: you Hmm. simply scaled back on your effects. You would take a coin and you'd throw it up, and if you don't hear tink, tink, then you know it's not metal. You don't have a metal ceiling, right? Right. But places like and I have to mention this places like the um, Market Square Arena. Yeah. Ah, you know we were shooting 35 millimeter film that day. We were, I had 70 feet to the rafters. Oh man, I had the flash pods loaded. That was one of your favorites. I, favorite was, to really I kick was loaded loose. for war. I'm going to war. <laughs> I got 70 feet to steal, man. Nice. Well, here comes the cue when they're rolling and the band's playing. And this cameraman pulls up on my downstage pod number one, downstage left, first pod. He pulls up. It was I was on cue. I was had all the presets on. I didn't do the cue. Everybody just came and started yelling at me. I almost quit that day. Oh wow! I said, "You see that man down there?" And he, I said, "I'm going to kill him." You know? And he looked down and he was right over the flash pod. Oh wow! Well, now man. I'm on cue. Now if that man, if I didn't kill him that day, uh, he would be, and he's still alive today. He'd be still smarting over those wounds he received. I would have blinded him, blown his arm off. Oh Remember, God, I got eight six, eight ounces of powder. I'm going for the rafters. Right. It, it's being filmed. I got seventy feet. I'm going for. It. You know how big those fuckers were.
1: That poor guy would have landed well, in the nosebleed seats.
0: <laughs> right. I said, just back up. Beep, beep, beep. They start over again, and everything worked fine. But everybody came apart on me. And safety first. Right. I think. I think they get it now. Yeah. They get it now, because Paul even said, they you know, he's worried about safety recently, the past few years in an interview. It wasn't like it used to be. You're goddamn right it's not like it used to be, because I was very caring. I did not want Kiss to be known as the band that killed,
3: right. you know,
0: mm-hmm. uh, John Smith, cameraman, local 172,
3: From
1: Indiana, out of,
0: yeah. uh, you know, Indianapolis. Right. Or Maine somebody.
1: Right, you know, I mean, because you know, at that time, that could have...
0: Or Kiss be known as, oh, yeah, they're the band that, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that killed a guy with an right. special effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, that or could have definitely part. hurt him big time back then.
0: Oh, no, I'd hurt him. I, I, there's no question that I, um, I was going to, you know, do something tragic to this man. I never forgot that. I, everybody, Sean, Gene, particularly, you know, Gene would get his ire up a little bit more. Than most of the band, and I said I can't fire the guy; is over the pot. Wow. You
1: know? So did they cool out once you realized, did they realize they realize you saved a man's life? Did they cool out after that?
0: Well, they're rock stars. You know what I mean? Yeah, they,
1: they, they turned on they him. <laughs>
0: feigned, they may feign that they're really angry, but I think you know, they're not stupid people. Okay, right. yeah. I think they realize that hey, you know, they were about ready to hurt somebody, and then the shoot would be over.
3: Right. Over, yeah.
0: and if the word gets out in the community you hurt somebody with your special effects, take a look at the map of the United States. That's your right. community, right? Yep. And the guy, the fire marshal, you next town you go in, he'll be, you. he'll be ass. looking yeah. for you. He'll yeah. be looking for you because if he knows you're going to hurt somebody, if he knows you're going to set something on fire, they will not yet let you use your show. So I have to walk a very, very thin line mm-hmm. between keeping the band happy, keeping the fire marshal happy, and not hurting anybody.
2: Yeah, and uh, well, uh, here's another interesting question, and I didn't even know about the facts that this guy states. So you could tell me if, the, if he's wrong. It's from a listener named Richard Buffett, and he says on the debut tour, KISS were supposed to open a few dates with the Faces, but the tour got canceled, and then also proposed dates with Queen and Martha The Hoople got canceled, and he wants to know, what, do you remember any talks about them toning down the show for, like, a smoother ride with headliners?
1: Those bands were scared.
0: I think they were scared. Yeah. You know, you're right. You're right. They were, they, they were just... Uh... They didn't want us to, to. No, they they didn't want to, to be a part of, associated with us. Yeah. Like Paul said in an interview, you know, he said, you know, they, we had problems having people play with us. You know, they yeah. wouldn't play with. They didn't want to play with us. So, lo and behold, you know, we just got booted off. The you know, there was there was talk about it. Let's put it that way.
2: Right. And I had a I had a number of listeners all asked one question in particular. Did you keep anything rare uh, memorabilia-wise or any home like home movies and photos and stuff? Yeah,
0: you know something? I have some recordings when I was mixing. I have Hammond, Indiana, and I have the job that we did in uh, East Lansing, Michigan. I forget the name of it. I have to look it up. Is it maybe it was called The Wine Barrel.
3: Uh-huh. It was
0: somewhere around October. Let me go look and do this book here. Somewhere around October 21st or 22nd. There it is. It was called Opening Act, was Rush. I couldn't believe that one. Capacity 750. Wow. Attendant 750 promoter, Bill Smith. Did I keep any memorabilia? The question is, my mix, two of my mixes, Mm -hmm. I found them. Did some restoration on them. Gene and Paul have them now. I have my Buck Knife. I have my original Kiss Brass, not the ones that they manufactured, you know, when they started going really commercial with their their merchandising.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I have a drumstick. I sold a lot of my stuff at auction, you know, my old KISS jacket, my KISS vest. I wish I had some film, you know, being a film student, yeah. but I didn't have the time.
2: Right. So, you had plenty of you know, other you stuff. To worry about. you roll into a
0: town, you go in and you walk into this big theater and you go, okay, set up. And it wasn't an easy setup. You had a lot of things that you had to bring stuff to the band. You got to get their, their wardrobe cases set up. You know, all that stuff has to be moved. It's all time, you're on minutes, short minutes. Look, at, let's look, let's look at the history of a special effects. You know, Roger Daltrey went deaf in one ear. Why? Because his fucking roadie filled up a flash pod, and, uh, put it on the drum riser. When he set it off, it blew out his eardrum. Yeah, That's why Daltrey is deaf in one ear. You know, there was another incident where people tried to copy the Kiss show, and they put flash pods on top of it, the, loaded them up. And I mean, really, and put them on top of the speakers. They blew right through the horn, and down and through the woofer, you know, the big big speak, speaker yeah. cabinets. Yeah. They sent people to the hospital.
1: Yeah, look okay? at Metallica, you know. People
0: went to the hospital. I forget where that was. Um, but, um, uh, you know, stupid shit. And, of course, the Great White Fire, 99 counts of stupidity and, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, manslaughter. Doors were locked. No fire extinguisher. They couldn't even get their guitarist out to safety. Right. Ninety-nine awful. people died. I'm furious about that. Just that awful. just kills it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because there some asshole sets off a 12-foot gerb with a 12-foot ceiling. And it just so happens that there's paper on the ceiling. You know, you look at all that and you go, you look at the effects and go, you're right. My, son, my son-in-law was saying to me, he goes, after all this, he went through a whole litany. Of stuff, he goes. You have your right to take your bows on this. I said, you know, For sure. I was yeah. very conscientious. I worked hard. I didn't want. I wanted to do things the right way. I wanted to uh, just get along with everybody, mm-hmm. just so we could you know. And we did. Then the, the, the people that wanted to get along with us, but the other boys, and including Leonard Skinner, they didn't like us. Those boys were still fighting the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> we were damn Yankees to them. Oh, they hated us. Wow. <laughs> Oh, you know I mean we were in playing in Atlanta at Alex Cooley's electric ballroom yeah great venue with rush and uh, you know and then we got did a few gigs with those boys and it was very contentious yeah you know I mean needless to say um, you know again, this say this pushing us around. Yeah. And we got our show on, but still it was uh I think there was a little brawl that ensued at some bar somewhere. Uh, this is, you know, you know, early on in, uh, I was 74. This is pre-airplane crash.
1: Yeah. It, we're getting these great stories about the unsung heroes of rock and roll, you know, the road crew, and you know, we we've been just rambling on and having a good time and we've talked about all kinds of great things, but we're pretty much out of time here for this week. And I don't feel like we've even scratched the surface here I with what we could talk about with this guy. I mean,
0: uh, listen, we, Moose, you wanna, you've got to you you come, come back talk on. again. Um, yeah, I know that if you want to talk, maybe sometime this week. Maybe if you have, if you guys have the time, yeah, let's let's uh, let's continue. You know, let's go for another half hour or an hour because you're right. We scratched the surface, and we got a lot of scratching. Got a lot of stuff. What other questions did you uh, did you have, Chris? I just got. So I
2: can... I've got one more listener question that was interesting enough that I wanted to use on the show. Is uh, this is from a guy named Rich M, who's from Montreal, and he said, uh, in the beginning, when things were really tough around uh, when the Dress to Kill album came out, the finances were at an all time low for the band. Neil Bogart was producing the album. Was there ever a rumbling about the band just packing it in? Because I know things got really stretched thin for them at that time.
0: Well, there was a rumbling, but it. We disregarded it, mm-hmm. and good deal. We 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 didn't. We I guess we were in denial. Everybody who just said we're just going to keep rocking and rolling. We are just going to keep playing. You know, Casablanca only had like three quarters of a million dollars to start with, and he got the money from Warner Brothers. Right. Warner Brothers hated Kiss. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> they even want Casablanca to sign Kiss. Wow, there was so much against them from that kickoff you know three quarters of a million dollars is a lot of money back then and today's dollars maybe it's i don't know three million, four million dollars mm-hmm. 5 somewhere in that range so there was a lot of oh you don't do it this time you're dead and that's when each when they went to cobo hall they had to make it yeah. that was pretty much it if that album did not explode it probably would have been over or maybe they would have gone to another label right you know you know, who knows who who you can't there isn't a, mag- a crystal ball for this one,
2: right? And I think, but I
0: can tell you, real time it may have been over if that album didn't hit. So you know what? I don't. We can keep we can keep bantering and rolling on for another hour. Yeah, for sure. But again, I appreciate you guys for continuing the, uh, to the keeping the band out there.
2: Oh, we're just happy you were, able to, you were willing to talk to us, and uh, we're excited to do it again because I know we're, yeah, there's a we're, lot of stuff we can just, touch on.
1: We're just the middlemen. You know, it's, it's all the fans of the show that are KISS fans, and then you know, the, on the other side of that, the great people we get to talk to, especially during KISSmas in July, you know, that have been involved with the band. So we're just facilitators, but we, we love our jobs.
0: Well, That's the whole thing. You're doing it for the love of it, just like this crew, this roadie, did it for them. You're doing it for the same for the same reasons, which I I applaud you for. I admire that. Oh, thank you very much.
1: That's cool because we're not making any money either.
0: (laughs) 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 See, forty years later, a lot of shit hasn't changed. it? no, it hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Not making any money off of them either. Yeah, I hope hope you do someday. I hope so uh, too. (laughs) Hey, we got a donation last week. Yeah, we did. (laughs) First time ever. I want to talk a little bit more uh, about certain things because we, like you said, Aaron, we just scratched on some things. We got into some things, yeah. But um, you know, there are there are other stories and other and other things that uh, your fans may want to know details about. Absolutely, yeah, me and, too. Yeah, and we will. You know, uh,
1: we didn't even get to the Ace Frehley drinking stories. That's not <laughs> right. So oh, the, you that, didn't even that get that'll the be
0: when, you know when Chris Griffin ran the truck off the here I go ran a truck off the Trans-Canada 1. He missed the driveway. He went in the V-ditch because it looked flat, and the truck tipped over, and oh. we were stuck there all night. So the bear's coming by. They see the truck. They stop off. Ace hangs out with us. We're playing poker all night. I beat him for his watch. <laughs> <laughs> in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, of all fucking places. <laughs> I well, minus 20 degrees. Oh, my the God. next morning, the sun is up. The snow stops. And three tow trucks. We stopped Canada 1 for a few hours. Wow. Three tow trucks to pull out the truck, because we were on our way to Manitoba. So we were going Canada 1 right from Vancouver, straight across. Wow. And our little stories like crazy, there's lots of those. And Ace Drinking, when he was out of control, he just got stupid. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't control himself. That... how you cocked, Curly? <laughs> That'll be our cliffhanger fine, for Ace. next time. Yeah. yeah, But he wasn't malicious. No, no. There was, are good drunks. Ace was a good drunk. Yeah. There are bad drunks. Ace was a good guy. I liked Ace. I especially liked them when we used to go around during some of the tours. We'd go to the porn shops between with either me and Pauly or me and Ace. And we'd go looking. Well, they weren't vintage guitars back then, but we'd go looking for Strats, Les Pauls, vintage amplifiers, all the porn shops. You know, they weren't all, you know, back then Les Paul wasn't uh you know, considered a vintage guitar, all right? but we'd go around looking. We loved doing that shit. We used to go around all the porn shops in all the cities, and I bought. I even bought some bases for $150. Went back to Manny's and sold them for $250. a hundred bucks. Nice. I had enough. I had enough of my own bases, but I bought a Fender Jazz Cup, um, a Fender Jazz Bass. Walked into Manny's, New York, and sold it to them for a couple of $250. Made 100 bucks. Pretty good for a roadie. A, yeah, it's a good sweet.
1: turnaround. you got to make you your money
0: anyway you can. Like a week's pay, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> man, you've got to come on with us again. I, mean, like I said, will. So I will. More. Next
0: week, or if you want to do, if you're going to hold off to the next weekend, you, you just let me know, yeah, I'll Give get, me a call. I'll get awesome. I'll
2: definitely get with you, and, uh, we, and we'll be in touch, and we'll, we'll get another list of stuff together that we want to touch on. And if you have things you want to share, then, you know, you're more than welcome to.
0: Yeah, you know, because I know when you ask a question, I try to answer it. I go off into the weeds a little bit, and then I go back there. that's the what question. we
2: like.
1: Yeah, we, that's, that's, that's I know the good thing about it. A lot you know? of it
0: dovetails into each other. Yeah, right. See, that's the thing. A lot of it, this story will dovetail into this story. To, to this story, it's like, you know, pulling at the Paramount Theater. Why did I rip the sink out of the wall and throw it out a window? Because of the <laughs> we were driving. We hadn't seen a hotel room. It was raining. It was one of those loads where you had to go up these stairs with the levitation machine. And the producer gave us cheese, whiz, and crackers for dinner. Jesus.
3: Oh.
0: And I hadn't seen a hotel room. I hadn't eaten. And I looked out the window, and there was nobody there, and they were cheering. And I said, pack away. I ripped the sink out of the dressing room. The first time I ever trashed the dressing room took the stick out of the wall, threw it out the fucking window. I was so pissed. I was so pissed. They didn't feed us. You know, that's how we were treated. Cheese whiz and crackers. And we're hard-working boys. We need fuel for our engine, man. You need more than that. (laughs) You know? I mean, just stories like that abound. Yeah,
2: well, we'll get into that for sure on the next one. But, yeah, thank you so much for coming on for this. And yeah, uh,
1: man, thanks. This is awesome. Yeah, we,
2: we look forward to the next time for sure.
0: Absolutely. I look forward to it, too. It's great talking with you guys. I like your spirit. I like what you're doing.